everyone. Welcome to K-Pop Bookshelf Podcast. This podcast is where we will be exploring Korean popular culture through books. I'm the host of this podcast, Mina, and I can't wait to talk about books with you. The book that we are taking down from the bookshelf today is From Factory Girls to K-Pop Idol Girls, Cultural Politics of Developmentalism, Patriarchy, and Neoliberalism in South Korea's Popular Music Industry by Gu Young Kim. This is an academic nonfiction book published in 2019 that looks at K-pop idol girl groups from the lens of how they were used as a tool by the South Korean government for the country to develop into a more modern nation. The author pays particularly close attention to the rise of groups such as Girls' Generation, who are referred to as SNSD in this book, and that's how I'll refer to them today in this episode, and idols such as Besuzi from Miss A, among others. He goes into Korea's history with the manufacturing industry and how K-pop and girl groups in particular are sold as a type of manufactured good. The title of this book seems to come from the idea of an assembly line style of manufacturing cohesively stylized girl groups in the same vein as 1960s Motown girl groups. We will go more into detail about that later. Due to the technical and scholarly nature of this book, there is no plot to speak of, and therefore, nothing that I would consider as spoilers, so I will not be providing spoiler warnings during today's episode. I could not find much information about the author of this book, Dr. Gu Young Kim, other than that he is a professor of communication arts at a university. According to him, he wanted to examine K-pop's global success from a macro level, unlike other books and academic writings, which he says examined it from a micro level. The reason I wanted to read this book is because I am particularly interested in books written by individuals who are either from Korea, have spent an extensive amount of time in Korean society, or have Korean heritage. But he has some interesting ideas about K-pop girl groups, and so based on this, I should just say up front that I was not totally in love with this book, but I did find some of the concepts that he brought up useful and interesting. And before we get into the book, I am going to try and define some of these concepts. These are complex concepts which are not really easy to simplify, but I will just do my best and hopefully what I say is accurate and understandable. So the first concept we are going to discuss is the miracle on the Han River. So the Han River, if you don't know, is a major river that runs through Seoul and there's many references to it, you know. You can visit it if you visit Seoul. And so the miracle on the Han River is a term used to describe the modernization of Korea in less than four decades, even after Korea was left devastated in the wake of World War II and the Korean War. Now, this miracle was achieved primarily through making Korea into a hub for exports using factory labor and sweatshops. This was done in the 1960s through the 1990s by the dictator president Park Chung-hee. Many countries imported goods from South Korea during this time. And I should say that by development, we mean transforming Korea from an agricultural country to a more developed, modernized, industrialized country. Along with the government directing this modernization, it was also facilitated with extensive support from Japan and the U.S. The next term is the 1997 Asian financial crisis. And this information is what I retrieved from the Corporate Finance Institute. So in 1997, the Thai government ran out of foreign currency, which was used to support their national currency called the Thai baht. And the Thai baht was pegged to the U.S. dollar. So when they ran out of money, they had to float the baht, 
which caused the value of the bot to collapse. And this created a domino effect on the value of currency in various Asian markets, including the Korean currency, the won. Now, prior to this crisis, several countries, including Korea, had increased their gross domestic product, or GDP, which was considered an economic miracle. This increase in GDP was due to an increase in exports and foreign investments. And all of those currencies at the time were tied to the U.S. dollar. However, in the 1990s, the U.S. recovered from an economic recession and raised their interest rates. And at that point, the value of the dollar increased, which meant that currencies tied to the U.S. dollar also increased in value. That made exporting more expensive and ultimately hurt the Korean and other countries' export industries. This ended up causing the GDP to drop for Korea and the other affected Asian countries. These countries also had large amounts of foreign debt, and this revealed the weaknesses in their economy. Korea took a bailout from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, which was worth $59 billion to avoid defaulting on their loans. Accepting this bailout required them to undergo significant economic restructuring and accept extremely large amounts of foreign investment. This restructuring pushed Korea further towards a neoliberal economy. But what is neoliberalism? It's a little bit hard to explain, so I'm just going to read directly from a Guardian article which seeks to define neoliberalism. So it says, Neoliberalism sees competition as the defining characteristic of human relations. Neoliberalism sees competition as the defining characteristic of human relations. It redefines citizens as consumers whose democratic choices are best exercised by buying and selling, a process that rewards merit and punishes inefficiency, and maintains that the market delivers benefits that could never be achieved by planning. Attempts to limit competition are treated as inimical to liberty. Tax and regulation should be minimized. Public services should be privatized. The organization of labor and collective bargaining by trade unions are portrayed as market distortions that impede the formation of a natural hierarchy of winners and losers. Inequality is recast as virtuous, a reward for utility and generator of wealth, which trickles down to enrich everyone. Efforts to create a more equal society are both counterproductive and morally corrosive. The market ensures that everyone gets what they deserve. So that's the definition from The Guardian. And just to let you know, neoliberalism is what was required by South Korea in order to achieve their goals of developmentalism. The government forced a modernization to manage the economy, but rather than by using regulations, they used their power to support certain areas of the economy, often using tax credits and benefits that they provided to Chebol families or business conglomerate families like Samsung. You've seen portrayals of Chebols in like almost every K-drama. So the next concept is Confucian patriarchism. Several centuries ago, Korean society operated under Confucian principles introduced by China. A major aspect of Confucianism is hierarchy. And under these principles, there were certain hierarchical rules between all members of society and how they related to each other. So it was how young people related to elders, how masters and servants related to each other, and how husbands and wives related to each other. Within this structure, men had control over women's lives. Women had to be married, and girls' education was based on becoming a good wife and mother. Confucian patriarchism is a concept in which men are superior to women, and it was very strict for women in that they had to obey their fathers until they got married, at which point they would have to obey their husbands. 
Once they were widowed, since they were not allowed to remarry, they had to obey their sons. During Korea's Chosun dynasty is when Confucian patriarchy ruled, and women had to be fairly secluded and could not just be seen out in public without certain restrictions in place. They were even segregated within their own living spaces during this time. The influence of Confucian patriarchy lessened over time due to events such as Christianity coming to Korea and peasant rebellions and uprisings. Despite the strict rules of Confucian patriarchism not really being in place anymore in the way that it once was, you can see in Korea there is a societal hierarchy based on relationships such as the way youths relate to elders, how children relate to parents, or how higher-ups relate to those who are lower than them in professional spheres. So let's go on to the book. Dr. Kim, who's the author of this book, does not go into this concept in great detail, but one comparison he does make is the mass production of K-pop idols to 60s groups that came out of Motown. Motown Records is a record label that became famous in the 1960s and after for their African-American music stars. The label operated out of Detroit, Michigan in the U.S., which is where the auto industry was at the time. The founder of Motown Records was Barry Gordy, who had previously worked on an auto assembly line. Barry Gordy was inspired to create his own hit factory, churning out an assembly line of artists and produce music similar to the way cars were produced in the Motor City of Detroit. This factory concept is probably where the title of this book, The Factory Girls Part, comes from. But it's worth noting that Factory Girls was also the name of a variety show that Girls' Generation participated in. Motown was incredibly successful in creating African-American music stars, both male and female. But visually, the ones that stand out the most are probably the 60s girl groups like the Supremes, the Marvelettes, Martha and the Vandellas. And Motown controlled much about how these girl groups appeared in public, including how to sit, stand, talk, etc. Sound familiar? It probably does if you listen to our first episode, which was about the book Shine by Jessica Jung. These girl groups often sported signature beehive hairdos or other glamorous hairstyles that were signature of that era, sleek dresses and cute dances with synchronized arm movements to go with their songs. Some of you may even know that the original K-pop stars to take the U.S. by storm, the Kim sisters, who started out performing at U.S. military camps in Korea, then emigrated to the U.S., eventually became famous enough to regularly perform on The Ed Sullivan Show. During the 1960s, The Ed Sullivan Show was the biggest variety show in the U.S. at the time. The Kim Sisters paved the way. I'll include a video on my website of the Kim Sisters performing on The Ed Sullivan Show in the 1960s, and in that video, they are kind of stylized a bit like Motown performers of that era. In modern K-pop, some girl groups, such as Wonder Girls, have paid homage to the Motown style and sound. So during the 60s and 70s, during the heyday of Motown, is when Korea was undergoing their industrial transformation, the miracle on the Han River, as we discussed, where they were working very hard to become a major player in the export industry. It was during this time, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that women came out of their homes and into the workforce in Korea. Unfortunately, they were exploited as cheap labor in the manufacturing sector with poor working conditions. As previously mentioned, President Park Chung-hee, the dictator president, ushered in an era of economic reform by focusing on exports within the country of Korea. By the 1970s, the Korean manufacturing sector was in full swing and women were being exploited as cheap labor particularly in sweatshops throughout Korea. In the book, Dr. Kim makes a correlation between female industrial workers in Korea and K-pop idols. He talks about the need for female workers who grew up under Confucian patriarchy to be obedient 
And he further states that K-pop idols are similar because they also have to be obedient to their CEOs, most of whom are male, if not all of them, and they have to obey what these male leaders ask them to do, which is, I guess, technically true. I don't know if that's really related directly to Confucian patriarchy, but okay, maybe. Now, after the IMF crisis, when Korea suffered all those losses and lost all that business and exports, the Korean government decided to start exporting culture instead of just manufactured goods. And to this end, they formed a Ministry of Culture, which helps support and therefore somewhat influences the K-pop industry. The daughter of Park Chung-hee, the now impeached president Park Geun-hye, who is currently in jail for corruption, also invested in K-culture under her administration, which started in 2013. As president, she had wanted to create a second miracle on the Han River and revitalize the Korean economy. The same way in which the Korean developmentalism in the manufacturing sector worked is the way K-pop worked to produce songs using a model of globalization, localization, globalization. This is the model for K-pop production first identified by Gilsung Park, who Dr. Kim cites in the book. So in this model, song and choreography creation are outsourced to foreign artists, which is the first globalization step mentioned, and then the idols are locally trained, which is the localization aspect. And finally, they are marketed globally and exported out, which is the last globalization piece in this formula. And that's similar to the manufacturing model in Korea because they would take raw materials from other countries that were maybe poorer than Korea to get the raw materials and then locally create the parts and then outsource them to foreign companies. So let's talk about the U.S. and the influence of U.S. culture in Korean society. In Korean society's imagination, according to Dr. Kim, the U.S. was considered a liberator. Korea was heavily influenced by the U.S., who were considered economically and militarily strong. The U.S. had a military presence in the country of Korea and also worked closely to shape their post-war government. According to Dr. Kim, the U.S. is also seen as a savior from communism and poverty. And that's because, like I mentioned, they were involved in the Korean War. And also they economically assisted Korea during the IMF crisis and other times. U.S. pop music became known in Korea due to the military bases in camp towns, which we discussed a little bit when I mentioned the Kim sisters. The Kim sisters used to buy American music records and practice them so they could perform at U.S. military camps. Dr. Kim talks a lot about this concept called cultural hybridity. And that's where performers shed some of their traditional Confucian values for what they see in American pop culture, in media, especially in things from like MTV. And that's something Koreans have pretty much always done, again, since the U.S. military presence in Korea. Dr. Kim mentions the group So Teji and the boys as prime example of this hybridity because they mixed American genres with Korean styles. Dr. Kim then goes into a discussion of marketing this hybridity of K-pop and American culture with SNSD's U.S. debut, and I'll get into that a little bit more later. Another thing he talks about is the concepts of Aegyo and Kawaii style versus a more sexually aggressive or available style of idol. So in Korea, Dr. Kim mentions there's something called Samchon fans, and Samchon in Korean means uncle. These fans are middle-aged men who really like it when girls do Aegyo, and Aegyo thus becomes a marketable commodity, as does female sexuality, under the structure of neoliberalism. Aegyo, if you don't know, is when idols use cutesy gestures and baby voices to put forth a kind of coquettish and submissive sexuality. Eikyo has parallels to the Japanese concept of cuteness called kawaii, 
And according to Dr. Kim, they both serve sort of a similar purpose of providing fun distractions to men when their self-confidence is low during otherwise stressful economic times. So again, that's kind of what he was saying as far as I could gather. Maybe I'm misunderstanding, but it sounded like he was just saying like the the whole point of girl idols being kitsy is to appeal to Korean men. Um, and this is for distraction and fun or something to look forward to outside of their sad, economically difficult lives. So to illustrate this point, Dr. Kim discusses the music video for Girls' Generation, who he calls SNSD, the, their famous song, G. So in the song, G, if you've seen it, they're being really cutesy, not especially sexual in the music video. They're all wearing like cute little different color pants and just they have this dance called the crab walk dance. And it's it is super cute and it's not like provocative or anything at all. And SNSD, aka Girls' Generation, was the first K-pop girl group to promote in the U.S. Uh, with their appearance on The David Letterman Show and The Morning Show Live with Kelly. Dr. Kim says that they, in the U.S., they were being marketed to sell Asian female sexuality. And so he goes into the different MVs music videos of G, as we mentioned before, which is like cutesy, Aikyo. And then the music video for The Boys, because The Boys is the song that they performed on both Letterman and Live with Kelly. So the music video, as we discussed for G, was to entice Korean society, which is evidenced by the use of the girls' agio. And maybe, again, maybe I'm totally misunderstanding what he, Dr. Kim was saying. So if you don't agree, just let me know. But in the music video for The Boys, Girls' Generation is portrayed in a much more sexually aggressive, and he says, dragon lady image. And if you're not familiar with the dragon lady stereotype in Western media, he describes them as, quote, visibly sexual and sexualized and domineering female attemptress. So he goes on to say that in the music video for the boys, the colors are less poppy and they're more muted, conveying something more mature and sophisticated. He also contends, however, that there is an element of the China doll trope or image which, if you're not familiar, is a submissive and vulnerable good girl. Uh, but he doesn't say exactly where in the video for the boys the China doll image emerges or how it comes through, so I wasn't really clear and I'm not sure if I agree that both of those tropes are in there. He goes on to add that the close-ups and clothes in the boys' music video relate to American individualism as opposed to collective Confucianism, which I guess is demonstrative of the cultural hybridity he mentioned. He notes that the dance moves in the boys are way more sexual than the cutesy dance of G, which is an attempt to entice a U.S. audience. He says that Western media covering SNSD's performances on U.S. television focused on exotifying and the stereotypes of Dragon Lady and China Doll, but he only gave two examples. One was an article from the Wall Street Journal that ran after their performance, which Dr. Kim describes as focusing on SNSD as, quote, uniform sexual objects characterized as sexualized and alluring Asian temptresses, end quote. Now, I didn't have money for a Wall Street Journal article or subscription, but I read a Soompi article where they summarized the Wall Street Journal article that was written at the same time. 
and it says, SNSD is described as a telegenic group that has a strong global following as it cites the 64 million YouTube views for their G music video. It also talks about the girls' recent performance at New York's Madison Square Garden while mentioning Big Bang, To Anyone, and Wonder Girls as other leading K-pop artists. The article ends with a powerful quote from Tiffany that was taken during a summer concert in Japan. She was quoted as saying, we definitely want to sing in English. We need to be nine Beyonce's. So yeah, that's the summary of the Wall Street Journal article. He also mentions another article that was from the International Business Times called Girls' Generation David Letterman Performance, The Boys, Debuts Korean Stars K-Pop in America. And then it just talks about how there are nine pretty Korean girls. And then it says that they sang and danced on David Letterman's stage while computerized pop music and a flashy lights show accompanied them. It says K-pop is reminiscent of the shiny mass-produced pop songs the American music industry was pumping out in the late 1990s. In Korea and much of Asia, K-pop has become ubiquitous. Teenagers are obsessed and get their hair cut in the K-pop style. So it's just a little article that doesn't really say anything about exotifying them or anything like that. However, his real issue with this article was the picture that apparently accompanied the original article. And this picture doesn't accompany the article now if you access the article online. But it was a picture of SNSD backstage on David Letterman with the actor Bill Murray. And he says that this article is, quote, not about the group's musical talent or performance, but a glorification of their sexual bodies. As a simulation of a man's womanizing fantasy, Murray is posed in the midst of nine attractive, young, exotic Korean women who are presenting cute, intimate, and tempting body language around and with Murray, end quote. Okay, so if you look this image up on image search I will have it on my website all it is is them standing there and the girls are making peace signs so you know that's them like presenting cute intimate and tempting body language and then Bill Murray is just standing there he's not waving any peace signs he's just standing there he's just smiling there's no quotes from Bill Murray or Regis Philbin who was also there or David Letterman himself talking about how attractive and exotic they are so I really don't know what he was talking about there also in this book, Dr. Kim talks about selling the female body as a commodity in, as part of neoliberalist economy. Dr. Kim uses SNSD, aka Girls' Generation, again to make the point that idols often go back and forth from cutesy agio to sexy and sultry. He points out the difference between SNSD in the G music video, again, where they're like kind of agio girls hanging out, and Genie, the Genie MV, where they're in saucy military uniforms with a choreography that highlights their bare legs and high heels. So Dr. Kim seems to focus on the marketing of this to male audiences, and by this I mean female bodies. So like I said earlier, he was focused on Samchon fans, but he never explores the appeal really of girl idols to other women. Pretty much the only thing he says about it is that other women fantasize about being them. He also says nothing about the appeal of K-pop girl groups or K-pop in general to the LGBT population or anybody else. There's a whole chapter about Bae Suzy from Miss A, and he describes her as having a simultaneously cutesy and innocent but sexy persona to which there is no American equivalent. But uh, I'm pretty sure that's like every American person. I mean, he, he's the one who is Korean and not me. And so maybe there's something that he just didn't like clarify very well or I didn't pick up on about why Susie's version of it is different than, say, Britney Spears when she did her whole like not a girl, not yet a woman thing. He talks a lot about 
the bodies of females idols and it's really disconcerting he also talks about that quality that Susie had of being both innocent and sexy at the same time as quote schizophrenic and quote split personality of female idols just a note here that these are terms that he used in the book these are not my terms they are obviously being used in a way that is not consistent with the mental health definitions of those words the concepts of schizophrenic or split personality amongst young girls teen girls in particular was written about by these other scholars, namely Emma Reynolds and Jessica Ringrose, who discussed this concept among teenage girls who were growing up in an increasingly sex-saturated society and culture. So they're at this teenager age and they still have to act sexually knowing. It's basically what it seems like they were saying in their papers. And Dr. Kim applies this concept to idols. But Dr. Kim says that idols use this schizophrenic split personality and end up reaffirming Korean patriarchy because it legitimizes female subordination, being cute and submissive, and naturalizing neoliberal imperatives that female bodies are commodities. So he's basically saying that the way that Korean idols have to be both sexually innocent but also hypersexual intensifies patriarchy's totally other-oriented emotional economy. That's a quote. To satisfy male affective and sexual needs. I don't really know. I guess this could be true, but he doesn't, again, he doesn't really take into account the appeal of these idols to women. He talks about how dancing in sync in typical girl group choreo is a, quote, visualization of their conformity and an internalization of Confucianism en masse, end quote. And he's talking about when girl groups do that kind of dancing. But does that also apply when Motown girl groups are dancing in sync? Is that also an internalization of Confucianism? And don't pretty much all pop stars do that thing of like, oh, I'm so innocent. Oh no, I'm so sexy. Like it's not as if it's only in Korea or specific to Korean artists. Later in the book, he goes over this whole visual analysis where he goes into various girl group music videos. And let me tell you, I do not like this section at all. He goes into extreme detail about where on the girl's body the camera is directed or which body part draws the most attention based on the way the girls are moving or dancing. It is extremely uncomfortable and it's sort of a departure from all the economic policy and academia of the book. You don't really see the point of that deep visual analysis so I'm just going to skip it all together but I guess it's somehow related to neoliberalism in post-IMF crisis Korea. In conclusion, overall, I'm not sure that Dr. Kim ever really proved his point that girl idols in particular are a tool of development for Korea or that they help to reach a goal of neoliberal capitalism. I mean, that's what I think his point was when he started out, but he never compares male idols to girl idols or talks about the differences between them and how they're commodified, which I think would have been a lot more interesting because, of course, male idols do a lot of the same things that girl idols do. You know, I'm not saying they have the exact same experiences. I'm sure there's plenty of differences, but he didn't go into it, so it's hard to say. But some of the things he mentioned, like being sexualized, doing agio, having to be the good boy, boy next door type, but also a sexy bad boy at the same time. You know, those are all kind of universal to all pop music as well as K-pop music. Dr. Kim himself conceded in the conclusion that he didn't really cover how female fans appreciate girl idols. And I'm glad he recognized that because that was like a huge gap in everything he was talking about. We will be reading other books within this podcast that also make the case for K-pop and K-culture being commodities which are different but also kind of similar to those which come out of the manufacturing plants of Samsung and Hyundai. And to be honest, I don't really recommend this book. It's a bit all over the place and 
the detailed descriptions of music videos and the bodies of those in them seems really excessive and really frankly bothered me yeah we'll read other books and we'll talk more about some of these concepts so that's why i'm glad i was at least able to bring up these concepts within the podcast now so we can have them in the back of our mind my website will have some links to articles, that famous Bill Murray SNSD picture, lots of other stuff. So do check that out. And if you liked this episode, please tell a friend about the K-pop bookshelf podcast. I would like to give a special shout out of thanks to my co-researcher and script editor B. Thanks. And until next time, bye. Bye.